Shadrach, Meshach, Lockridge. That's what his name stands for. Probably why he went by S.M. No, I'm not, I'm not kidding you. S.M. Lockridge pastored a great, great church in California for almost 40 years from what I can recall. He's been with the Lord now for a few years, but I had some cassette tapes. You remember what those, they're, they're in a museum. I think the cassette tape is in a museum somewhere. I got a Ziploc bag full of B.H. Clendenin sermons on cassette tape. I introduced him to Brenda the other day. We was on a road trip, and uh, she was very impressed with him. And now I'm her third favorite preacher. You know. I think the guy at Gardendale is her favorite preacher. So I'm trying to catch up. I don't, I don't think I can close the gap, though. Wow, what, what a great day. What a great day. One of the things that did, wasn't mentioned this weekend is we had a Royal Ranger camp out on this property uh, Friday evening. So we had communion in here. It was great. Um, this Wednesday wasn't mentioned, but this Wednesday we have our annual business meeting. And we don't believe in bad business meetings. We have nothing but great business meetings. And uh, so we have our report from last year and all of that. And in two Sundays, two Sunday evenings from today, we're going to have the Women's Teen Challenge in the Fellowship Hall at 6 p.m. We're going to do it like we did with Scott McGevney Strickland, just have some sharing. And, and uh, Teen Challenge is one of the great ministries in the world. It's all over the world. You know, probably, you probably know the story of David Wilkerson going into New York, uh, Pennsylvania, small-town pastor, ends up in the streets of New York, right in the middle of gang warfare and heroin addiction. And, wow, it's, it's an incredible history since then. They have Teen Challenge in Moscow, in Sri Lanka, in Calcutta. They have Teen Challenge in Muslim countries because they don't know what to do about their drug addiction. But they hear about Teen Challenge. So uh, it's going to be a great time of ministry. Turning your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to share the resurrection, an explanation. In chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians is uh, probably the most concise, far-reaching explanation of the resurrection of Jesus that's in the Bible. It is the best chapter about resurrection in all of Scripture. So it's kind of like, Paul's dissertation in one little concise, condensed place about what the resurrection is all about. Now, he's writing this to the church in Corinth, and if you've got a Bible that kind of dates uh, 1 Corinthians, it's around 59 A.D. It's uh, about 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. So, you know, you, you got something like 30 years that have transpired, and already, already in this young church... There's problems coming up. Fancy that. <clears throat> There's problems coming up all over the place. In fact, they had so many problems in Corinth that it took two letters to address them. So that means there's hope for any church, right? Paul loved this church. Wow, what challenges they had. And one of the challenges they had was after 30 years of Christian history, that's not very long, from the death and resurrection of Jesus, false teaching had already started coming in to the church. Now, you think about 30 years ago, if my math is right, that's what, 1986? Am I right on that? You know, you remember anything that, of prominence that happened in 1986? 
The Challenger, January. The Challenger exploded. And I didn't see it. I, I, I was walking into uh, the uh, terminal, the airport terminal at Jacksonville, Florida. We was picking up a family f that was coming in from Cambodia and to help them relocate my my associate, who happened to be my brother-in-law, and we looked over, and people were gathered around the TV, uh, TVs in the terminal. It was like, what's going on? We walked over just in time to see the replay of the Challenger exploding. Think about if somebody came along and tried to rewrite that story, it'd be hard-pressed for them to do that. But look at 9-11. How far back was 9-11? Do you know there's people already trying to rewrite that story? It's all kind of conspiracies. The government blew those two buildings down. And they photoshopped the planes flying into them. I've had young people in my youth group at uh, Benson High School in our church there that did not believe the summer after I graduated, the summer of 69, that we walked on the moon and they believe it was staged in a Hollywood studio. <laughs> so there they go. There you go. There's people kind of rewrite. Well, Paul is listening to what's happening and what people are talking about the resurrection. So he writes this chapter, and the opening lines sound like the opening statement of an attorney in a courtroom, kind of like what we had a year ago. And listen to the opening lines of 1 Corinthians 15. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you a reminder of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. And by this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, a reference to some have passed away. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born or born out of sequence. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them Yet not I, but it's the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preached, and this is what you believed. If you go back to verse 4, there's a three-pronged declaration. That's the essence of the gospel, that Jesus died for our sin, sins. Not just Jesus died. Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures that he was buried, which is a statement that he really was dead. He didn't pass out on the cross. There were some people that call it the swoon, swoon theory, that he passed out and he got put into a tomb and he resuscitated. 
There's actually a theory about that. Theory about everything, isn't there? But he was buried, meaning that he was really dead. It really happened. He really stepped into death. And that he was raised on the third day according to the Scripture. Now, the next statement he says, and he was seen of Cephas and of the twelve. That alone is like if you're in a court of law and you're talking to a jury that's about to hear a, a trial, if you've got a witness, an eyewitness, that's good, isn't it? But if you've got two eyewitnesses, that's really good. But he goes from one eyewitness to 13. And Cephas is a reference to Peter. He said he was seen of Peter, and then he was seen of the 12, the group as a whole. And so that's enough to convince them that he's really alive. The, the church he's writing to, he says, I preach this to you. There's evidence behind what I preach to you. I just didn't preach to you words or ideas or concepts. I preach to you about a specific thing that took place 30 years ago that Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried, and that on the third day he was raised according to the Scriptures. But in quick fashion, he goes from 1 to 12 to what? 500. And he says more than 500. And listen to this, the specific way he says this. 500 at the same time. And most of them are still living. You see how he's building this evidence to them that we didn't come out with some kind of fuzzy idea. This is an ironclad cloud situation that happened when Jesus died and was raised from the dead. And he goes to those 500 people. It's like he says, if you want names and addresses, I can give you more names and addresses that you have time to go and research it. What he's doing, he's building this case. And then he says he appeared to James, and then again to the apostles, and then he said he appeared to who? He said, I saw him. I saw him with my own eyes. Now, the way he saw him blinded him, but he said, I saw him. I saw him, I, I was an apostle like born out of sequence. I didn't, I wasn't with the original 12, but I became part of that group in a delayed way. He said, but I saw him. So why is he approaching it this way? Because some of the people in the church was already saying, you'll read this later on in verse 12, that there was people already saying there's no such thing as the resurrection of the dead. Why were they saying that? They heard the message, the gospel. He says, I just want to remind you of the gospel. It has not changed in 30 years. Jesus died for your sins. According to Scripture, he was buried, and he was raised on the third day, according to Scriptures. This has not changed. It's the same gospel, and he's trying to bring them back to where they believe. He says, if you hold on to what I told you at first, your faith is not in vain. But if you let go of it, whatever faith you had was in vain. And this is what was going in Corinth. It was Platonism, the idea that came from Plato. This was the philosophy of the day in the Greek-Roman world. And if you looked up a definition of Platonism, you know, you could Google it now on your phone if you want to, but I'll save you the trouble. It, it defines it this way. It stresses that actual things, physical things, are copies of transcendent ideas and that these ideas 
not the, not the, the physical things, but the ideas, the transcendent ideas, are the objects of true knowledge. In other words, the physical world is irrelevant. It's just, it's just here as an example of something higher than here. And the effect of that is that all of this is irrelevant. This is kind of like Christian science, Mary Baker Eddy, this mixing up Neoplatonism. If you look that up, it's an attempt of, of liberal scholars, Christian church scholars, trying to mesh Christianity with humanism and science. That all of this is just uh, really our imagination. This is not really real. And so it goes, it morphs into saying, and the resurrection of our bodies is not important. And this is what Paul is dealing with. He's dealing with this as kind of coming into the church from the city. And it's coming in through believers who have been exposed to this philosophy. In the 1990s, some liberal scholars got together and called it the Jesus Seminar. And every time, everything that has the name Jesus attached to it is not always trustworthy. I saw that last night on the, a program about they were going over the gospel of Judas. I thought, where are they getting that? So I looked it up. I said, I wish you guys would put as much credence in the four gospels that we have than some spurious fake, doc, uh, fake document a century later. But that was just me talking to the television. But Marcus Borg, who was one of the leaders of the Jesus Seminar, said this about Christ's resurrection. As a child, I took it for granted that Easter meant that Jesus literally rose from the dead. I now see Easter very differently. For me, it is irrelevant whether or not the tomb was empty. Whether Easter involves something remarkable happening to the physical body of Jesus is irrelevant. Randy Alcorn, who I, I read this from one of his articles, his response to this was, Borg, as a child was right, but as an adult, he couldn't be any more wrong than what he just said. But this is how, this is how, you know, this is not, we're not in Corinth. We're not, uh, we're not exposed to Greek Roman philosophy. We're not having to compensate for our surrounding. But here it is within our own generation this has infiltrated the church. That there's no resurrection. There's, there's some not even saying that there's a heaven or a hell. There's a lot of them that don't want to believe in hell. And so they say it doesn't exist, and therefore I guess it makes it not exist. But so Paul presses on about this in verse 12 because he deals with the what is. What if there's no resurrection of our bodies? What, why is it relevant that our bodies, we have a promise that our bodies are going to be resurrected, that our bodies are going to be changed. Follow this, and I'm going to start with verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? If, this is the what if that he's dealing with. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If there's no resurrection for us, then he wasn't resurrected. And he makes this point. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and your, as is your faith. 
More than that, we are found to be false witnesses. False witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Jesus, raised Christ from the dead. But if he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised, if we're not raised, then God didn't raise his son from the dead. Verse 16, and if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And he tells us why it has to be connected this way. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. In other words, you're still lost and on your way to perdition, eternal hell. If none of this is true, then we're still in a very terrible place, aren't we? Verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, those that we've already had memorial services for, they're lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Even if they don't say that Christ was, was physically raised, by them saying that we're not raised, he says in verse 13, if there's no resurrection for us, then not even Christ has been raised. And he says, our preaching is useless, as is your faith in whatever we preach. You lean toward a Greek philosophy, an idea that is still prevalent today, and you get way off course. And more than that, he says, we are found to be false witnesses because you, in fact, are saying we're lying about this. If Christ isn't raised from the dead, then we're preaching a false idea, and we're lying because we said we've seen him. If Christ is not raised, your faith is, in, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. In that case, if we want to say that Christianity is really a nice faith for this life, to give you hope for this life, I've heard people say if there's no heaven or hell, the Christian life is still a great life to live, and, and it's worth living this way, even if there's no heaven or hell. And I remember Carl Strader said, absolutely not. He says, heaven is going to be the only compensation that I get for going through some of the things I've been through. <laughs> Don't tell me just having a really nice religion and while I'm alive here is true compensation for faith. He said, I'm looking forward to heaven because that's the only reward for some things I went through. I tend to agree with it. And now, Larry liked this because I'm going to read this from the message. Verse 13. If there's no resurrection, there's no living Christ. And face it. If there's no resurrection for Christ, everything we've told you is smoke and mirrors. And everything you've staked your life on is smoke and mirrors. Not only that, but we would be guilty of telling a string of bald-faced lies about God. All these affidavits we pass on to you, verifying that God raised up Christ, sheer fabrications if there's no resurrection. If corpse cannot be raised, then Christ wasn't, because he was indeed dead. And if Christ wasn't raised, then all you're doing is wandering about in the dark as lost as ever. It's even worse for those who have died hoping in Christ and resurrection because they're already in their graves. If all we get out of Christ is a little inspiration for a few short years, we are a pretty sorry lot. <laughs> Eugene Peterson <laughs> said it, put it well, didn't he? Look in verse 20. 
But Christ has indeed, he makes this, he comes back to this truth, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Get this, here's the connection to us. The first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. I was telling someone the other night, might have been after communion, that when the Bible talks about being, Jesus being raised from the dead, the word for death is, is thanatos, where we get euthanasia, it's a, it's a, a mercy death. So thanatos is the word for death. When it talks about Jesus being raised from the dead, it's actually not like a, a sphere. It's actually a pronoun, a, a plural pronoun, dead ones. That he's actually raised out of dead ones. All of those who have died, he went in there where they, wherever they're at, and he came out. Isn't that great? That might not inspire you, but it really inspired me. He's the... He's the first one. Listen, he says, he stepped into death, and his resurrection gave hope to everybody else. His resurrection changed the look of death. For since death, this is verse 21, for since death came through a man, Adam, the resurrection of the dead comes through a man, Jesus. And he says, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his turn, he's connecting us to what happened with Jesus. Christ, the first fruit, he's the first one to come out of the grave that way. Then when he comes, next in line are those who belong to him. He's connecting our resurrection with Christ's resurrection. And with the resurrection of our bodies connected to him, he's the first fruits and we come afterward. Jesus set the tone for resurrection by coming out of the grave. Get this. He brings up Adam, and then Adam, everybody died. Death came through Adam and Eve when they sinned. But before they sinned, God created them with bodies, right? A physical body out of the ground. He created Adam out of the ground operated on Adam, took one of his ribs, and made Eve from the rib. But he made them both material bodies, physical bodies. He breathed into Adam. Adam became a living soul. And when he created them without sin, their bodies were eternal. They would have never died. The earth was not under any kind of curse of sin. They weren't under any consequence of sin. So God wanted them, God made them to be material. He wanted a physical world to put us in that physical world for a divine purpose. And when he resurrects us, it is to start a reversal of sin's effect. To the point, I know this is not going to be good news for some of you, to the point that he's going to create a new earth and a new heaven, and we get to live there. If you're thinking about Jesus going to get to live forever in heaven, heaven's coming to earth. You read it. It's not like we're going to be up there in this kind of, you know, wonderful, transcendent, no worries, nothing to do, just eternal retirement. That sounds good, doesn't it? But sin brought death, 
And God wants, listen, God wants to redeem your body as much as he has redeemed your spirit. Even in Romans 8, Paul says that our bodies are actually groaning to get what our spirits have gotten in salvation. That our bodies yearn to receive this wonder of eternal life that our spirits, and he says, and he even said it this way, the redemption of our bodies, meaning the resurrection, the, the transformation of our bodies. Let me drop down to verse 35. Watch this. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they have? Have you ever asked that question? What kind of body? This is one of the best chapters on the resurrection because he answers that. What kind of body are we going to have when it's raised from the dead? What will it look like? He says in verse 36, how foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And when you sow, you do not plant the body that it will be. In other words, you don't take an ear of corn and dig a hole and put it in the ground. You can, but it's not. you can. You can do that. You're, you're going to be really disappointed when it doesn't grow. It has to be a dead kernel of corn that is dormant with life. Not a hybrid, but a seed that has life in it, but it's dead. And you have to put it in the soil. This is what he's saying about our bodies. But a seed, perhaps of weed or something else, but God gives it a body as he's determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh. Animals have another. Birds have another. Fish have another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind. Listen, he's about to, he's about to give you something to hang on here about how we're going to be in that resurrected state. There are also heavenly bodies, there are earthly bodies. The splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. <clears throat> the sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, the stars another, and stars differ from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. He's just given us an illustration. So will it be. The body that is sown is perishable. He's talking about this body. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. There's a graphic that's going to appear, and it has this. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a... Now, this is like a, an oxymoron here, a spiritual body. Because we think of spirit as invisible, right? But he says the body that we have will be material, but it will be a spiritually controlled material. How's that? It's like Star Trek. Beam me up, Scotty. Dissolve the person in the tube and they appear somewhere else. Well, that's science fiction. I'm sorry if I disappointed you by telling you that. He says it is a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there was also a spiritual body. The earthly body is this way. It's perishable, but it's raised imperishable. It's in dishonor. And it kind of reminded me of that verse in Isaiah 53 that Jesus had no form or comeliness. There's nothing in him that we should desire him. 
the earthly body of Jesus, he was saying, is basically was unimpressive. No, he did not have a halo when he was walking around over his head. Artists put that in. He, he lived in one of these. One of these, he, he had to deal with all that comes through this, from fatigue to hunger. All of the things, he dealt with it. This is, this is one splendor, but the resurrected body is a different splendor. And he's telling us on the right side of the splendor of the resurrected body. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. You think about the radical transformation of the body at resurrection. No wonder they didn't recognize him. No wonder. The body that he had was not the same that came out of the tomb. It was more, it had a greater splendor to it. Yes, it was a physical body. He even, he even went out of his way to let them know that it wasn't a phantom, he wasn't a ghost, he wasn't a spirit. He, he, he was not just appearing to them as real. He said, touch me, touch my hands. You feel where the nails went in. Touch my side where the spear went in. It is me. Give me something to eat. He, he let them know that it was his body, but it was a different body. And the difference was on the right side of that. And then Paul gets to this final statement in verse 50. He said, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood, listen to, he's specific here, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. What is blood to us? It's our life. Life is in the blood. It's what keeps us alive. The blood flowing through our bodies, through the tissues, through the tiny capillaries, it keeps us alive. But he says, flesh like we have and blood like we have is not what's going to inherit the kingdom of God. This body is going to be transformed where it does not depend on any physical substance within it to keep it alive. It's going to be eternally alive, self-resuscitating by the life of God in us. I don't think we can ever come to really see and understand the grandeur of what's going to happen to us. He says, but I'll tell you this. Listen, I'm going to tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. And we will not all stay dead. But we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trump, the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable. And we will be changed. And what a change. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable. This is the same body but it's changing, it's changing the whole constitution of it. And the mortal with immortality, and when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. One of the songs had this line about it. Worthy is the king who conquered the grave. Worthy is the king who conquered the grave. Listen to me. 
that conquer was not just his grave. It was your grave. And, it was, and it's the grave of all of those who hold the remains of those who have believed in Jesus. You think about that. Worthy is the king who conquered the grave. Not just his grave, but grave in general. And this is the thought that came to my mind during worship. That Winford and Betty Lynn occupy two graves side by side in Childersburg. But that grave has been conquered. It's just a matter of time. It's it's already written down what's going to happen. The dead in Christ will rise first, united with the spirit and body. God does not want us to be disembodied spirits floating around in heaven. He's designed for us to have a new body because he wants us to be that way. He doesn't want us in some kind of fuzzy place. He wants us to be right here to bring glory and honor to his name. Joining Erickson Tata wrote this. And Brandon, if you can come to the instruments and the praise team. You know who I'm talking about, right? Johnny Erickson Tata. Terrible diving accident when she was a young lady. And it paralyzed her from her neck down. A lot of people prayed over. You know, it just hasn't happened. It still may happen. But she said this. And I, and I think there's a truth in here for us. I don't know if you like the body you have. I don't particularly like the form mine is in right now. I need to get on a bicycle and do some riding. But Joni Erickson Tata said this about her own body. She said, somewhere in my broken, paralyzed body is the seed of what I shall become. The paralysis makes what I am to become all the more grand when you contrast atrophic, useless legs against the splendorous, resurrected legs. I love what she said next. I'm convinced if there's any mirrors in heaven, and she put... And why not? The image I'll see will be unmistakably me. Although a much better, brighter Joni. We celebrate Christ's resurrection because his resurrection is connected to us. And all we have to do is believe. And if you believe, I want to tell you, inside of you, is the seed for which your body will become. And when we're planted in the ground, if that comes before his, he comes for the church, we have this assurance, as Paul did when he faced his own death, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord himself will give to me. I will be resurrected one day. Would you stand with me? All we have to do is believe and surrender our lives to him and trust him and all will be well. Amen? All will be well. 
how are you how are you today do you have do you struggle with having hope for a situation you're in the Lord wants to restore hope in you he wants to lift the burdens that are on your life I love this song from the first time I heard it it's an invitation to come to the altar and let the Lord do something if you need prayer this morning for anything stuff you're facing but you don't have answers or maybe you uh, maybe you, this is what you've been it's okay for the Lord to have your heart and spirit but you just want to use this body for what you want to do well according to what we read it doesn't work that way your faith is actually vain if your faith doesn't go past your head to the behavior of your body. And you need, to re you need to get that connection straight because God didn't give his son to buy your spirit only, but that your body and spirit would belong to him. And that's why the Bible tells us that our bodies are what? Temples of the Holy Spirit. They're supposed to be houses for the Holy Spirit to live in. Lord, I pray today, if there's disconnect in this room, and more than likely with us living in a secular world, we're being pulled in different directions other than truth. And we may think that if we just give you occasional confirmation about our faith, we're okay. You didn't die for that, and you were not raised again, that we would stay in that kind of setting. Lord, may you give hope to those who have given up the prospects that they can live out their faith. May you connect with them today and draw them to you, Lord. If you need prayer, we want to pray with you right here on Easter Sunday that God's power and grace will connect to you. Thank you, Lord.